we have been walking through a series called Revolution, looking at the cross. And what I have said is it's almost like we're taking a diamond and we're turning it and seeing how the light hits it from different angles to, to take, understand um, the beauty of the cross. Um, we've been, this is our fourth week. We've talked about the fact that the cross is the center of our faith. We, there is no Christianity without the cross. Uh, we talked about the fact that it's not just that Christ died for us, it's the method of the way he died that brought about this amazing cosmic spiritual revolution. Um, the, the suffering that Christ went through physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, all have an impact because Jesus took on all the things that we fear as, as humanity, all the things we walk through in humanity, he took on at the cross. Uh, last week, we talked about, uh, we, we got a little theological, and we talked about penal substitutionary atonement, uh, the idea that Jesus put his, himself, uh, took the, sac- the sacrifice that was due for the, the penalty of our sin, he stepped in and took that on our behalf as the representative of humanity. And today, we are talking about uh, Another aspect, we're going to turn the diamond a little bit this morning. What happened at the cross is mysterious and beautiful, and, and when we look at it, we get our, our best glimpse of the justice, the love, and the beauty of our Heavenly Father. And so in this series, we've been, we've been turning the diamond and, and, and allowing light to hit it from different angles and hopefully gain, gain a greater understanding of what took place at the cross. Now, here's the thing. We are not doing this so we have a better theology. Our ultimate goal is so that if someone says, hey, tell me about penal substitution, you know, because that's the conversation at Starbucks. Can you just tell me about penal substitution? I'm wondering about that. Um, the, our goal is just not so we'll, we'll have these facts down and be good in debate or good in discussion. What we are hoping for is that we would gain a greater wisdom, yes, but ultimately so that we will know him more. We will worship him more deep, deeply, and we will follow him more passionately. That is the goal of this series. And I've got to tell you, it's been encouraging, not only to, to witness some of the expressions as we've walked through this series, as we've been preaching up here, um, but also to be in conversation with some of you, get some emails from you guys about, uh, about the impact of this series and, and, uh, and this reflection on the cross. And so that's been fantastic. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. That's on page 9. Oh, that's just my Bible. Um, Colossians chapter 2. And we are going to read from verses 13 to 15, a short text for us this morning. And out of respect for God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand. The word of God to us this morning. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God of grace, I pray you would speak to us this morning through this text. I pray that we, when we walk out of here today, we would have engaged with you and had a greater understanding of the depth and the width of your love for us and the power displayed 
in the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Usually when, when Christians uh, talk about the power of God displayed, we tend to go directly to the resurrection. We say that's where the power of God was displayed. But Scripture would say that we're actually rushing it. That the great display of God's power, that may have verified it, but actually a great display of God's power took place at the cross. That a victory took place at the cross. Now, are you ready for your Latin for the day? This is what the angle we're looking at today. It's called Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Translated means Christ is victorious. Christus Victor. The entire point of Christus Victor is this. You can write this down. He won. Okay? He won. No longer does the enemy have any claim in victory over your life, over creation. Only Jesus does if you've put your faith in the work of the cross. Take every movie you've ever seen where the evil one is, is winning and the good guy uh, or the good girl comes in and they kick the door down and they come in like Schwarzenegger or, or Rambo but with more words and more intelligence and they kick the door down and all of a sudden the villain is cowering in the corner because they realize they really have no power over the hero, that is Christus Victor. That is what happened at the cross, Scripture tell us. We were enslaved to sin and death and the fear that it brings, and Jesus came with power and showed his strength over darkness. Scripture makes it very clear that you and I, and even ourselves and God the Father, are not the only players in this cosmic drama. It's not just that you and, you and I have sinned and God does not like sin. It's that we have been slaves to sin and its power over us and that Jesus has, has moved in on this, this darkness. John writes in, in his gospel, John, uh, in John chapter 1, that the darkness has not overcome the light as the light has come into the world. And what I'd like to point out this morning is that this victory, this, th- this cross of victory is victory for us On our behalf, it's victory in us, and it's also victory over us. So first off, the cross is victory for us. You who are dead in your trespasses, this uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many? That's that interesting Greek word, all. In English, it means all, okay? All. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is victory over the accuser, the devil, for our release. Scripture makes it very clear that the evil that, that the evil has made its way into God's creation and that it has a hold. Now, if you need proof that evil is at work in the world, I give you everything. Okay? You watch the news, you go online, you interact with people you love. You, you look at the intricacies in your own heart, and anyone who is honest will admit there is evil at work. Paul goes into this in Romans. I, I, I know what I want to do, but then there's this part that, that doesn't want to do it, and they're always fighting within me. Who will save me? And he points back to Jesus Christ and points back to the cross. The issues are so deep and so invading that a band-aid is not going to help. That something from without must step within and deliver. Something untainted must step in and mend and rectify. Scripture refers to the the evil at work and the one behind the evil at work as the devil, the accuser, 
the evil one, the tempter, the prince of the air. I like prince of the air because it makes it sound like it's very temporary. John 8, 44. Jesus is getting very mad at some people. <laughs> and Jesus had a really, Jesus did this wonderful thing. And you'll notice this, that Jesus tends to bring up, to, to use fear when he's talking to those who think they have nothing to fear. And he uses grace and love whenever there's people who think that nobody could possibly love them. And the gospel kind of evens off the field. Speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You are of your father the devil, and your, will, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you might get from that text that the devil is a liar. Okay? Ephesians 6, verse 11 Paul is telling us spiritually to get ready to live as a Christian. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the devil and his minions, okay, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we see more than a hint of the future of this accuser in Revelation 12. John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The ultimate ending of the accuser. So the Bible makes it very clear that when when Jesus stepped into history, he did not do so on neutral ground. That there was a force that he was dealing with when he showed up. He did not step into a vacuum. We, we know today when someone speaks the name of Jesus in the public square, it will, not st- it will not be spoken into a neutral audience, right? There will be pushback to the name of Jesus. And it, it's evident maybe more now than ever in our culture, at least, fundamentally, there's a spiritual battle going on where there seems to be a blindness to the dangers of ignoring boundaries, foundational beliefs that hold a culture together. So why the pushback? Why when we speak the name of Jesus and offer, offer uh, the gospel, is there pushback? Well, because we're moving in on the devil's territory. When we speak truth, we're moving in on the devil's territory. He doesn't like it when truth comes in because truth strangles lies. He doesn't like it when pure love shows up, unconditional love, because perfect love casts out fear. He doesn't like it when forgiveness arrives because he's an accuser. That's one of his favorites. And when you have been forgiven, there's nothing to accuse you of. These are his weapons. When the truth of the gospel, the love of Christ, the forgiveness offered us, takes over our life, the devil is being disarmed of his greatest weapons. Everything he loves to throw at us is being taken away. Lying, fear, shame, they have no reign over us. Why? Because as our representative, Jesus took the shame, he displayed God's love, and he brought about the means of our forgiveness. What, what does the text say? It says, he's forgiven us all our trespasses, he's, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set, us, set it aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and put them to open shame. I love movies when you think 
the, you think that someone's going to get it. The good guy's going to get it. And the villain is there with their gun, and they're extra tough, so they do it sideways. And they, they point the gun, and they're, they're saying all these threatening things until they pull the trigger, and they realize, no bullet. And then they click it again. And then click, 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 click. And they realize that the only thing they had as a tool to take on this person is now gone. No bullets. That is what Paul is saying. He's not talking about bullets. Every tool that the devil has has been stripped of its power. It's been disarmed. Shame. Shame. Triumphed over. And he can grin. And he can threaten. And he can accuse. And Jesus would remind us to look to the cross where it's revealed that Jesus was always in complete control. He nailed our sins to the cross. There's always a, a picture throughout Scripture, and many of us have, have sensed this personally, but there's a sense of this throughout Scripture of the devil being this accuser who's always whispering into God's ear. How can you love that person? How can you love that person when they reject you over and over and over, when they try to be you? How can you love them? And the cross, and we see this in Zechariah, we see this in, in Job, him accusing like that, and the cross is God's great shut up, you're annoying to the devil. It's like, yeah, okay, Jesus. And the devil has nothing after that. He's got no other card to play. He's got no other bullet to put in his gun. You're so annoying. Just shut up. Stop nattering. Because of the cross, the devil's accusations have become lies. Think of that. What were once his accusations have now become lies. They're no longer true. That we were far away from God. Now we're brought in. We're in Christ. So he can natter all he wants doesn't change the facts. God says, all the stuff you want to throw at my children has already been nailed to the cross. You don't get to decide, Satan. I make the rules. <laughs> and I accept that sacrifice. And I accept these children. So the cross is victory for us. But the cross is always also victory in us. The cross is victory in us. It, it seals the devil, devil's fate, but it also changes ours. It buys us hope. It buys us a future. It buys us relationship and reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In removing his power over us, we have been made free. The Bible makes it clear that there, is, there are cosmic spiritual laws. Much like the way Isaac Newton looked out his window and saw the apple detach from the tree and the apple fell down and he realized every time an apple falls from a tree, it falls down. It doesn't fall sideways. It never falls up, even on windy days. Always apples fall down. It's these rules of the universe that make science possible. But it's the same when it comes to cosmic spiritual rules. And one of them is that sin naturally leads to disorder, chaos, and brokenness. Always. Sin never leads up. It never leads sideways. It leads down. It leads down in our relationship with God our Father. It, it leads down in our relationship with each other. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it makes our relationship with God impossible because He's perfect and cannot look on our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. This is a spiritual cosmic law. But the free gift of God, also 
a spiritual law, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin naturally takes us to destruction. It, it never falls up, but always down and destroys relationship. And the devil loves this. He feeds off it. The, the destruction that, that sin brings. And he loves our anxiety. He loves our, our shame that comes with our, the loneliness, our separation from each other, our separation from God. The devil loves this. Romans 8.28 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And when, when Jesus came, he pushed back. He pushed back on the discord that the devil thrives on. Healing the sick. Healing those who were, who were demon-possessed. Forgiving those who people thought were unforgivable. Loving those who people thought were unlovable. Proclaiming worth on those who felt worthless. And that's what the gospel still does today, and many of you here could testify to that. You need to realize, every time that Jesus healed somebody, every time he delivered someone from possession, it was an attack on the devil. It was a moving in on his territory. When he rose Lazarus from the dead, it was a moving in on a domain that the devil thought he owned. I do destruction. I take care of that. No, you don't. It was a shaming of the devil. You don't have the power you thought you had. And ultimately, so was the cross. Colossians 2, 15, as we read, says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a wonderful picture here that if we don't understand uh, the day, we, we don't get. So when, when the Roman emperor would conquer a land that he was fighting against, he would bring them in, into Rome. He would parade them into Rome and strip them of all their armor, strip them of all their weapons, and march them before everybody cheering as the emperor took the lead and said, look what I've conquered. Everyone take it and shame them. Shame them for trying to fight against us. Paul is saying Jesus has done that with the devil. He took every arm, bit of armor the devil thought he had, every tool he thought he had, he has tossed it aside, and he is now marching them along, marching the devil along, saying he's powerless. He has nothing you need to fear. Can no longer hold you captive from fear and death because Christ has won the victory over Satan, over death on the cross. It's victory for us and it's victory in us because the devil no longer has power to instill fear and dehumanize us, accuse us. And we, always, and we can often get off track and we say, well, why do I, am I still feeling it? Often it's because we're not, we're not looking to the cross. We're not, we're not saying that's where my identity will be found. That's where I will find my worth. That's where I will have my shame removed. He's no longer a threat. He's simply an annoyance. We've been freed. We've been given new life from underneath his reign of accusations. It's been stripped. And because we are in Christ, we say we are, we are with the conquering king at the front of the parade. That, that's who we're with. If you're wondering where, who we're going to identify with, it's with him. And the essence of understanding Christianity is to understand that his victory is our victory. When we say, you hear that phrase, in Christ, it means everything that he bought is yours. Everything he purchased and the power he showed belongs to you. Every benefit. That's what it means to be a Christian. What he bought, I want. 
I'll take it by faith. So it's victory for us and it's victory in us. But the cross is also a call for victory over us. Victory over us. We, we overlook certain words when we read Scripture. You know how it is when we, when we read Scripture? You're like, yeah, I got it, got it, got it. It's almost like when we used to trade cards when I was a kid. It's like, got it, got it, need it, got it, got it, got it. Almost with every, if you've been reading the Bible for years, it's almost like, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Need it. I'll underline that one verse. Got it, got it. But words like kingdom, salvation, Lord, those are militant words. You've been saved from something in battle. Kingdom means someone is actually ruling over you. To say Lord, that means someone has a say in your life more than an hour on a Sunday morning. More than the 10%. To call Jesus Lord is a big deal. See, we, we think it's just a fancier way of saying Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if the person next to you when you're praying in the prayer circle just says Jesus Christ, you tag a Lord on there. I'm going to put a little crown on him. Pretty good, huh? For Paul... The Apostle Paul, the word Lord, carried some real weight. We read it often, so we think we can toss it away, but it carried some real weight. Words like dominion and mastery have their root in the same Greek word, kurios. Romans 6, 9, Paul has this wonderful argument through chapter 6 of Romans. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Literally, death no longer has lordship over him. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no lordship over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a new Lord. We're not mastered. We're not dominated by sin or the effects of sin. Death has no lordship over Jesus. This is the argument. It has no lordship over Jesus. Therefore, you are under grace. You will no longer be lorded over by sin, but you will be lorded over by Jesus. That's the natural path of the gospel. You will not be lorded or slaves to this, but you will be lorded over by the rightful king of creation. So it's, it's not a, a word we add just to make Jesus more fancy. It's a proclamation and a submission to his victorious kingdom. Romans 6.21, we, we, we touched on 23 there, but it says, But what fruit, were you, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What kind of fruit was in your life before you were under his lordship? For the end of those things is death. That's where that lordship let, leads. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get now leads to sanctification in its end. Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvel. Those are great labels. I'll take it. A chosen, way better than the accusations, right? A, a, a whole chosen race, a holy priest, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession. But what is the point of that? The point of all of that, to be called all of those things, is the growth of, the expansion of, the proclamation of salvation and the kingdom of God and His Lordship over our lives. Real rule. Real rule over our lives. One of the things that we don't do as well in Canada 
is, is the use of mascots. You go to the states and the universities, they really know how to use a mascot. Uh, in the states, they, they have all sorts of different mascots. We have the Utah Jazz Bear. Okay, now that's a pretty cool mascot. Apparently, he rides in on a motorcycle. That's pretty cool. I have to say, if you go through the colleges and universities, they degrade pretty quickly. So uh, I think it's Syracuse. Um, this is Otto the Orange. Not as cool. Uh, but it gets worse. The, the UC San, Santa Cruz, that is the, um, the banana slug. Like, does that instill fear? And then, no, well, you got to wait for that one. And then the one that will truly instill fear. Does anyone know who, who this is a mascot for? That's actually an NBA mascot. The New Orleans Penguins. Pelicans, excuse me. Is that not, don't look at it too long. Something will happen to you. You can leave it on that for a second. Now, a mascot has an important purpose. A mascot has an important purpose. When you have 40,000, 50,000 people in a game and your team's not doing so well, the coach is going to call timeout and the mascot's going to come out. He's going to jump around, he's going to bang a drum, and he's going to get everyone excited about what's going to happen. That's his main job, is to stir up a certain kind of passion. But when you bring a mascot out, it's not really about the mascot. It's about the team. Even more than that, it's about the fans and the, the uproar the fans are going get, to get in. The team designs the plays, it runs the patterns, it throws the blocks, it reaches the goal, and it claims the credit. The fans jump with joy, they declare that, declare that they're more superior than the other team, and everyone goes home happy, they all go home satisfied. Author David Bryant says this, he says, in so many of our churches... I fear Jesus is regularly deployed as our mascot. On Sunday, we trot, trot him out to cheer us up, to give us new vigor and vision, to reassure us that we are somebodies. We invite him to reinforce, us, reinforce, reinforce for us the great things we want to do for God. We look to him to reinvigorate our celebration of victories. We think we're destined to win. He lifts our spirits. He resuscitates our souls. He rebuilds our confidence. He gives us reasons to cheer, but then for the rest of the week, he is pretty much relegated to the sidelines. For all practical purposes, we are the ones who call the shots. We implement the plays, scramble for first downs, and improvise in a pinch. Even if we do it in his name, we do it with little reliance on his person. And the question he proposes then is Jesus simply our mascot, or is he our monarch? Is he our Lord? Is he on the sidelines during the week? Do we just bring him out on Sundays to sing about him and, and, and cheer him on and hopefully walk away with some warm feelings and maybe some encouragement for the week? Or is he Lord over our free time? Is he Lord over our families, our friendships, our internet time, our Netflix time? Is he Lord at 1 a.m. in the morning? And the invitation is to worship him as supreme son, worship him as the revealer, the ruler, the sustainer, the head and the victor over sin and death and our reconciler to God the Father. Christ whose cross has brought us victory in us, for us, in us, claims victory over us. That's the invitation. That we buy into this victory that has been, this conquering that has taken place for you and I. And not simply claim it, as I've said in the past, as a, as a passport stamp. 
but as a real lordship over our lives. Now, here's the thing, and all of us know this, and it's the question that will come anytime we talk about this, is we still see evil. We still see darkness. We still see death. Everyone that Jesus healed, they still died. Lazarus, he died again. Right? Everything Jesus did, every miraculous thing he did, even the Sea of Galilee got choppy again. Okay? But all of it was pointing towards a future. Everything was meant to give us hope and say, this is a glimpse of what my kingdom looks like. This is a glimpse, and it's coming. We still see darkness. We still see evil at worth. Fleming Rutledge says this. She says, in, in light, e- even so, the powers and principalities may not know it, but their foundations have been undermined and cannot last. The creation itself has been and is being invaded by the new world, the age to come. I, I've probably used this um, illustration before, but um, how many of you ever watched Band of Brothers, the miniseries Band of Brothers? Oh, it's a good one, guys. If you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. Um, Band of Brothers follows the 101st Airborne Division um, from June 6, 1940, well, earlier than that, but uh, the, the, the main event of D-Day dropping onto Normandy on June 6, 1944. And it follows them till the end of the war. Now, every historian of the Second World War, the majority of historians would say that the battle of World War II or the, the, the defeat in World War II, the victory of World War II, took place in Normandy on June 6, 1944. The war didn't end until September 2nd, 1945. But everyone knew, at, or looking back, it was evident that at that point, the battle was won. The war was won. The fighting continued, but the end of the war, the victory that the Allies had was established by the historical taking of Normandy. The cross has, has forever decided the fate of the devil. It has forever decided the fate of sin and death and shame and accusation, the defeat of his reign, the defeat of the tears and the pain that he brings. He has lost, and he knows it. That's, that's the story of Scripture. Now, in the Pacific Ocean, up until the 1970s, there were still some Japanese hiding in the jungles in the South Pacific, unwilling to give up. 30 years after the war, coming out going, we have not been defeated. That's comical if it wasn't so sad. That's all the devil has left. He's holding up his weapons that probably don't even function anymore. (laughs) Crying out, I'm not defeated. Yeah, you're defeated. (laughs) You can hold out as much as you want. You can speak as big as you'd like. The cross has put you in your place. It has removed the bullets from your gun. The shame, the accusations, because in light of the cross, they have no power over God's chosen ones. That is the victory of the cross. And he will yell and he will scream and he will scheme, but his final day is coming. It has set the course for the devil. It has removed his power over you and proven him to be powerless even over death. Fleming Rutledge goes on to say this. She says, The cross is the place where the decisive battle between Christ and sin took place, where the powers of Satan brought all their strength to the attack and where they were defeated. 
It is the place where the wages of sin were accepted on behalf of the whole human race. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. Every time a king conquers, he requires a response. Will you accept my kingship? Will you accept my rule? Or will you continue to live as if I never came? Will you give me lip service? Will I be a mascot? Or will I have real lordship over your life? Now, fortunately, the prince that we're called to obey, the prince that we're called to submit to, is the prince of peace. Fortunately, the prince that you and I are called to submit to is everlasting father, mighty counselor. And his invasion is for you and I to no longer live under the rule of he who reigns with fear and shame and lies. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. To submit to a good shepherd who restores our souls and leads us to paths of righteousness, who comforts and who sustains, that's the invitation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ because of the cross, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The cross is victory. It is victory for us, it is victory in us, and it needs to be victory over us. Let's pray. God of grace, a message like this hits everybody differently. For some of us here this morning, we walk in and we have shame. We walk in and we have burden from past mistakes. We feel like daily the devil is accusing us. He's in our ear. And we're reminded that all his accusations in light of the cross are lies. That you have called us to be your children. You have invited us to be your children. And because of the cross... We can put our faith in you, Jesus, and find deliverance. So it is my prayer this morning that those who come here who have been burdened by shame and guilt and accusation would come to you, Jesus, that at this moment they would trade their old selves in for new life. And if that is you this morning, take this minute to do so. To say, Jesus, I want what you, the victory that you bought at the cross, I want that to be my victory. The forgiveness that you offer, I want that. The payment that you made at the cross, I want that to be my payment. And yes, Jesus, I will submit to your rule. In the hope of eternity and in response to the great love that you have shown me, while I was running from you. For others here, Heavenly Father, there are some, myself included at times, who have been happy, whether we admit it or not, to use you as a mascot, to pump us up, to give us boldness, to encourage us, to give us confidence, to make us feel warm on a Sunday morning. 
But other than that, we leave you on the sidelines. So God, I pray for myself first. I pray you would forgive me. We pray that you would forgive us for compartmentalizing our lives, to hold, to hold in a tight fist thing, some things in our lives that we say you will have no lordship over them. Spirit, pry our hands open. We know that running from you, refusing to submit to you, will always draw division in our relationships, divisive in our relationship with you, and we cannot truly know the peace, the joy, the freedom, the life that you want to offer us unless we submit to you. And we thank you that your burden is light and that you are the Prince of Peace. You're the mighty counselor. And we invite that into our lives now. We pray that you would work in us and through us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.